0: Good morning, church. Uh, excited to start week three of life in Babylon, and we are in the midst of this conversation about what it means to live in a world that is growing increasingly more hostile towards our faith and recognizing that the Bible actually gives us um, people that we can actually look to and actually see how they responded in the midst of a culture that was Um, not responding to their faith or their belief system. And we've been going through this journey of looking through what does it look like to live in exile? What does it look like to live in Babylon? And we've been talking about some key things through this journey. We've been talking about Josiah week one and talking about how Josiah led revival. And what God wanted in the midst of that revival was he wanted surrender from his people. And we see that taking place in the midst of Josiah's time as king where he actually helped bring a whole nation back to the heart of God. But just like the generations before him and the generations after him, they struggled to actually continue to live in surrender. Uh, This led into Jeremiah, how we were actually looking at the prophet Jeremiah and his ministry and how he continued to help try and bring the nation or keep the nation in the midst of the heart of God. But Jeremiah's ministry honestly was a ministry that was, that was difficult. Uh, as he continued to proclaim the truth, to proclaim what it is that was actually coming and warning the nation, they struggled to actually believe him, trust him, and outside of Jesus dying on the cross, outside of Job who lost everything, Jeremiah is probably the most difficult ministry of all the people in the Bible where he had to communicate the truth and people continued to not listen. And so uh, we talked about that last week that in the midst of, of, of Judah being sent to Babylon, he had to actually uh, not only communicate truth and communicate a sadness and a weeping over the nation, he also had to give them plan as to what it meant to live in Babylon. And so he, he gives the nation of Judah a, really a plan as to what that actually looks like. It means to actually bless Babylon, to pray for Babylon, to actually establish roots there because you're going to be there for at least 70 years, God says. And so in the midst of that, Jeremiah is trying to give them a plan and he's trying to actually help walk beside them as to what it means to actually live while they're over in Babylon. Today we're going to start the journey of taking a look at Daniel. Everybody say Daniel this morning. So Daniel was a part of that first deportation. We talked about this in Jeremiah's ministry. There's three different stages of them taking over Jerusalem and taking people over to Babylon. Daniel's a part of the first deportation. Why? Why? because they took the best of the best of culture and sent them over to Babylon and Daniel's a part of this first group 605 BC. I just want to show you the map as to where this deportation takes place. It goes clear from Jerusalem, Israel, all the way up and over into Babylon. 1600 miles they traveled. Probably took about four months To get there to give you an idea as to how many miles that is it's a little over half of going across the United States and it's all on foot okay most likely there was some that started the journey and didn't complete it because physically it was probably too much it's part of the reason why they actually left some of the older and sick people in Jerusalem because the reality is the majority of them would probably just die on the journey but this gives you an idea as to where they're going and where they went and the distance that it actually enabled. And I just want to take time, you're going to notice below that, there's that keyword called Palestine. I just want to take a moment to talk about it, about what we're facing right now, uh, what Israel is facing right now. I know that many of you are in the midst of praying for Israel and praying for peace. And I am with you in that. And I think that there's a times in our lives when we look at, honestly, the horror that's taking place, and um, our hearts break. And I've been trying to figure out what it is that I want to say in regards to it, because there's a piece of this that's a little bit overwhelming, to be honest with you. Um, Not only the stuff that we're having to navigate within our own country, but then to see what's going on in Palestine, and to see what's going on in Ukraine and Russia that's been going on like it's overwhelming. I don't know if you guys feel overwhelmed at times, but I do. And one of my good pastor friends over in the Midwest, Jared, his name Jared Scholes. he says this. He says, "I serve a covenant-keeping God. I don't pretend to know all the that what all that means for Israel or for me as a grafted Christian how covenants exactly play out on the geopolitical stage, but all things considered including my time in Israel 10 years ago, I'm certain that Yahweh still has his hand on Israel in a special way. And I pray for Israel's peace, and I pray for security. May every nation and every tongue confess that salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb of God. Amen? Pray. Pray. If there's anything that we can know over the history of Israel and the conflicts that they've been a part of, God has done some pretty miraculous things. Pray. Pray. Some of you might be asking as we look at this map, why didn't they just go across the Arabian Desert? (laughs) If you don't know, this is what the Arabian Desert actually looks like if you didn't watch Aladdin growing up, okay? (laughs) This is the Arabian Desert, and if you're like, oh, that's not too bad. Let's take a look at the next slide. Yeah, it gets better as you go, right? (laughs) Um, this is the Arabian Desert. This is why they take the Fertile Crescent pathway because there is actual life in regards to this pathway. 1,600 miles. Babylon is a physical place, a physical uh, location, but the Bible describes Babylon as much more than that. It's an archetype. What is that archetype? David Kinnaman in the book Faithful Exiles says this, The Babylon of the Bible is characterized as a culture set against the purposes of God, a human society that glorifies glories in pride, power, prestige, and pleasure. Babylon makes appearances throughout the Bible, most notably and literally in the story of Daniel. But Babylon is there in the pages of Scripture from beginning to end, from the Tower of Babel, the first city of man, in the book of Genesis to the final act of God's justice and restoration and revelation. Babylon is both a place and an archetype of collective human pursuits set in opposition to God. Do you understand the picture? It's a physical place, but all throughout the Bible. It's not just a physical place. It's, It's an archetype. It's a picture of a culture that is opposite to what God desires. And we're going to be diving headfirst into Daniel over the next three weeks. I'm telling you today, and for the rest of the the sermon series, it's going to be a lot of information, fast and furious. So everybody get your seatbelt on. Everybody, ready? Here we go. Get seatbelt on. Click. Let's get after it, okay? How do we live in Babylon without becoming like Babylon. I want to show you this slide right here. Of uh, we've been kind of going through this journey of talking about what is the response in the midst of Babylon. How do we live? And some people say, "Well, we should separate." And the reality is, we do need to separate, but we also need to make sure that we don't move into the posture of actually hating. No, nowhere throughout Jeremiah's warnings does he say hate Babylon. Instead, he actually says pray for Babylon. And. Yet the other response is to then, well, maybe we should affirm what Babylon does, or we should sink, or we should align to some of the culture and the things that take place. And I've said this every single week. Both of those responses are left wanting compared to what God says in his word. And so what does it mean to live in exile? And for some of you, maybe you enjoyed the message last week because you're like, yes, we need to bless Babylon. We need to uh, think about the welfare of the city, as Jeremiah said, which is true. And if you didn't really appreciate the message, maybe you'll appreciate this message this week, and the rest of you will be like, I don't like the message compared to what it was last week, okay? And that's a tension we should live in, you guys. We need to live in that tension. And and let me say that in the midst of that tension, oftentimes there's not just simple, easy answers. There's difficulty. But what we're going to find out from Daniel is that Daniel prayed for Babylon, but he also was not willing to become like Babylon. And what we're going to find out today, is we look at Daniel chapter 1, and there's a lot of texts and a lot of things we're going to cover. In Daniel chapter 1, what do you do when you live in Babylon, but you don't become like Babylon, in the midst of Babylon trying to make you Babylon? Daniel chapter 1. Ashphanez, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family, nobility, a young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. I just want you to notice it says handsome. So whatever picture of a handsome young man you have, that's what Daniel looked like. Okay. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel the name Belteshazzar, Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? And the king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, and Michelle, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who will eat the royal food, and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. And at the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. So they entered the king's service in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them. He found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom." And Daniel remained there until the year of King Cyrus. So, the big question I said before this how do you live in Babylon without becoming like Babylon when Babylon is trying to make you Babylon? That's a lot of Babylon. But I want you to notice in Daniel chapter 1, there are a lot of things that are actually happening. And there are some key things that Babylon is trying to do to the Jews and specifically to Daniel and his best friends. I want to focus on those things because what we're going to find out is the things that Babylon was doing back then, Babylon is still doing today. What are they doing? What does worldly discipleship actually look like? You might be saying worldly discipleship. You've never used that term before. Correct. We use the term here about relational discipleship. Jesus has called us to make disciples who make disciples. We have to recognize that Babylon is trying to disciple us as well, just like as they were discipling Daniel then. What are the tactics of worldly discipleship that we see in Daniel chapter 1? Here's the first one. It's called isolation. It's isolation. They have removed Daniel and his best friends 1,600 miles away from their homeland. All of the things that they did before, all the things that they committed to, all the sacred rhythms that maybe they learned are being ripped out from underneath them. And they are sent to a foreign land In war, they call that dividing and conquering. And this is what they're doing to Daniel. They are isolating Daniel away from all that he knows. Number two, tell new and different stories. Have you noticed the amount of literature and the amount of teaching that's taking place in the midst of these young men that are trying to follow God? Verse four, he was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. Language and literature. New things, new concepts. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. I love what Stephen R. Miller says. He says this, Daniel then would likely have been about 14 or 15 years of age. I want you to think about that for a second. 14, 15 years old. Pretty amazing to be thrust into this situation at 14, 15 years old. What do you think about your own kids? If they were thrust into this position. How would they respond? goes on to say, when he was taken into captivity and began his training, Nebuchadnezzar wanted boys at a teachable age so they would be able and willing to learn, what's he say? New, New things. New things that oftentimes go in contrary to what God's word actually says about who God is and who you are. New things. Number three, they change your identity. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And they gave them new names. Why? Because your name is tied to your identity. Let's just take a look as to what these new names are. Daniel, God is my judge. To Belteshazzar, Bel will protect. What is Bel? It's a Babylonian God. What are they trying to do? Trying to change their identity. Who you are. What God says about who you are. And you can look at the rest of these names and see the drastic difference in the identity that's being told that's being communicated change your identity change the story of who you are where you've come from and even where you're going number four compromise change behavior Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official permission not to defile himself in this way. And God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. It all makes sense because they're asking for just vegetables. Vegetables. Right? And for all of you guys that are vegan, God uses your diet plan in a miraculous way. (laughs) Right? Because if you want to look bigger, you don't just eat vegetables. But God used it. In spite of the fact that Babylon is trying to change behavior, trying to change what it is they're going to be committed to, how does this all play out in our world today? I agree with David Kenneman, and just so you guys know, I forgot to mention this. this sermon has been influenced highly from David Kenneman in a book called "Faith for Exiles." And I'm telling you, every single person in this room, you need to read it. If you are a parent, you two times need to read it. This is what David Kenneman says. Babylon has gone digital. Period. Screen's disciple. Screen's disciple. I am concerned when I hear videos, and I I don't know all that's being said, I don't know all that's true, but it is extremely concerning when I watch videos of employees that used to work in big tech And they're sitting in forums, and they're saying, you have no idea what conversations are being had behind the rooms, behind closed doors, where they are trying to bypass you as a parent when it comes to the screen, to your children. I don't know all what is true in that, but it's concerning to think about in the world that we live in. He goes on to say, young people are looking to their devices to make sense of the world around them. As we've pointed out, they are using the screens in their pockets as their counselors, their entertainers, their instructors, and even their sex educators, among many other digital Sherpa roles. Why make the effort to talk to your parents or teachers when you can privately ask the smartphone in your hand? Parents, if you don't disciple your kids into the uncomfortable conversations of the world that we live in right now, the world will gladly do it for you. I know it's uncomfortable to talk about all the complexities of the world we live in, all the different changes that take place But what would you prefer to have? Your discomfort or your children being led down a path that's opposite to what God wants for you and for them? How does this play out in the digital world that we live in? Isolation. Today we are connected socially, but we're disconnected relationally. We're connected socially, but disconnected Relationally. And it's amazing how statistics keep growing in regards to seeing the effects of social media, the effects of our phones, that actually anxiety is going up in our society. Um, The actual fear of missing out is growing in our society. You would think that in the midst of our connection that those things would go down, but the reality is it's a false connection. It's actually not rooted in the real relationship that God has for you and me. Tell new and different stories. Not hard to go on YouTube and see all sorts of different stories that are being told in the world that we live in today. Not only that, change your identity. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, every day the message is reinforced. You must define who you are. What tribe are you going to be a part of? Discover who you are. And the whole messaging of all of it is to look inside yourself to figure out who you are. And here's the reality none of us were made to experience that type of pressure. Instead, we are called to look outside ourselves and look at God's word and to figure out what He says about me. And the Bible says that every single one of us in this room are fearfully and wonderfully made. That he knit you together in your mother's womb. And he speaks blessing over you. And yes, the Bible also says that you are a sinner. Every single one of us. And what's amazing about that is that God says you are fearfully, and wonderfully made, that he needs knit you together in your mother's womb, and yet he knew that you would come out of the womb and you would eventually be spoiled rotten. <laughs> and it'd be about me, myself, I, I, I. And God, in the midst of that, still pursues you and loves you. And so what does this look like in the midst of a culture that's trying to change our identity, who we are, this is why i can say we have to be willing to walk beside each other and walk beside our kids in the truth of what god's word says and at the same time there are so many people especially young people gen z that are very confused as to who they are 20% of gen z struggles with their identity We have to be a church that is willing to welcome them, to love them, to walk beside them, to be patient with them, and to also point them to the truth of God's word. Are you with me this morning, church? This is what's happening in our society. Babylon is trying to change who we are. This must happen. You must have resilience against the world's attempts to disciple you, your spouse, and your children. And if you don't disciple your family, the world will gladly move in and do that for you. Parents, if you're not having this topic of conversation, you know what I'm talking about in regards to the talk, right? It used to be you could wait until middle school to have that talk. Not today. And if you're in a place where you're going, I know I need to have this and I don't know how to have it, this is why we as the church exist. It's okay to raise your hand and go, I need help. I need to understand how to do this. Because there's a whole generation that's gone before us that'll probably tell you, this is what I did well in it, this is what I did not do well in it. And we have wisdom to help grow us in the fact of these tough circumstances that we find ourselves in. So raise your hands. Yeah, I need help. I gotta figure out how to have this conversation. Resilience is the marker of a people in exile. Yes, surrender. Yes, to live sent into Babylon, but also to live with resilience. To be a people that say, we're not gonna become like Babylon. We're gonna trust what God's word actually says and the big question we got to ask ourselves is how do we actually do that how do you actually live with resilience how do you actually counter the worldly discipleship that we find ourselves in and that Daniel was experiencing in Babylon number one you've got to connect into real relationships that's rooted in biblical discipleship you've actually got to say like this isn't real relationship it's not And you've actually got to get connected into a community that wrestles with God's word, that recognizes there is no easy answers. But if we can rely on God's word and relationship with one another as we navigate these difficult conversations, it's not any different than what Daniel did with his best friends. They circled together and they relied on one another in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of hard conversations. You have to believe that as they received these orders from the king, that they just just didn't go, oh, this is what we're gonna do. They probably got together and go, what are we gonna do? (laughs) What are we gonna do? How do we do this? And they made a decision to say we're not gonna live how Babylon's calling us to live. Number two, you've gotta immerse yourself in God's word. You've gotta be in God's word. Daniel chapter 9 I'm going to fast forward just a little bit cuz this is important. This is nearing the end of the 70 years where Daniel knows okay like there's a next step that needs to take place. God, I know about the 70 years. I know what's being said in regards to eventually us leaving here and going back home. Well, how did how did Daniel know that? It says verse 1 in the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom in the first year of his reign, I Daniel understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah, the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. And so, what did I do? I turned to the Lord God and I pleaded with him in prayer and petition, fasting, and sackcloth and ashes. How did he know? He knew because he knew God's word. And how did he know God's word? Let's not forget. It was Josiah who started a revival within all of his people, all of his family, a whole nation that turned their heart back to God. And it was Josiah in the midst of that that eventually walked beside Jeremiah. And Jeremiah continued the message. And Daniel is looking back on his history, immersed in God's word, knowing that in this moment, I know what I'm supposed to do. Generation after generation, immersing themselves in God's word in the midst of a culture that's turning their back on God's word. This is Daniel. Following in the footsteps of probably his mom and his dad. You've got to immerse yourself in God's word. And here's the thing that's fascinating about today. Let's take a look at this. This is fascinating from Barna. The yellow is using screen media, typical 15 to 23-year-old. Black is a typical 15 to 23-year-old who is a churchgoer taking in spiritual content. What is that spiritual content? How many hours in the last week did you spend focusing on your spirituality, including going to church, reading the Bible, praying, listening, or reading Christian content, or talking about faith? This is annually. Then the gray, just a typical 15 to 23-year-old. 153 hours just a typical 15 to 23 year old a churchgoer 291 hours per year a little over 5 hours a week how much time do they spend on screen media over 50 hours a week your eyes get this big when I saw that they got this big 50 hours a week And we got to ask ourselves, how do we actually combat that? We have to disciple. Eugene Peterson put it this way, readers become what they read. Readers become what they read. And so we have to be people that immerse ourselves in God's word. Number three, we have to use cultural discernment and we have to help our kids understand cultural discernment. David Kenneman, last quote, says this, In order to live well and wisely in the complexity of digital Babylon and hereby diffuse anxiety, we must build our muscles of cultural discernment, the ability to compare the beliefs, values, customs, and creations of the world we live in to those of the world we belong to. And once we've made that comparison to anchor our lives, including our use of technology to the theological, moral, and ethical norms of God's kingdom, we've got to have discernment. We've got to help our kids understand discernment. Number four, remember who God says you are. Remember your identity. If you go look at the rest of Daniel, the rest of Daniel in the midst of them giving him a new name, Daniel keeps saying this phrase over and over and over again, I, Daniel, I, Daniel, I, Daniel. I, Daniel. To let everybody know that was listening and reading what he had to put down that he was not willing to change who he was. He was remembering who he was in the midst of being yanked out of Jerusalem and being sent to Babylon. I, Daniel. I, Daniel. Lastly, we have to resolve to be faithful. We have to resolve to be faithful. This is the re- resilience that we talk about. And I want to share with you just this last passage. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter's actually writing in the New Testament to an exiled people. People that have been persecuted and sent all across um, the coast to the region of Babylon. And he's writing them to help rem- remind them as to what their calling is. And I want you to listen to what Peter has to say. He says this. Therefore He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and your hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For some this morning, you've been living by the rules, by the values of Babylon, maybe your entire life. And for the first time, maybe you're beginning to realize That there is a God who loves you, who died for you, and not only died for you, stared evil in the face, and conquered sin and death for you. And if you've never made Jesus Christ Lord of your life, that reality that he died for you, his love is actually beginning to change your mind and your heart. And it's time to surrender to Him. It's time to make Him Lord because He is the only thing in this life that will make you whole. And so trust Him. Trust Him in the midst of the difficulty. As we wrap up this morning, I want to invite you to just be praying about whatever it is your next step is that you need to take in regards to these take-home next steps. And as we get ready for communion and we have the elements that are going to be passed here, if you have not received the elements and you would like to take communion this morning, I want to invite you just to raise your hand. And these amazing servants would love to bless you with the elements, a piece of bread and a cup of juice that represents Jesus' body and blood which is shed for you, broken for you. Invite you to pray and have a conversation with Jesus this morning as we prepare for communion. Let's pray.